Well, all right, my friends, good day to you. Uh, Lucky for us today, we get to speak with Trisha Curtis, and she's the president and CEO of PetroNerds. And now, Trisha, you're based out of uh, Colorado, yes? I am. I'm based out of Denver. Very nice. Well, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Very excited to get to talk with you. Uh, I've been checking out your LinkedIn the and the PetroNerds website, and I can only imagine how busy you are with all of the really good content and podcasts up on the PetroNerds website that right there for everyone to see too. So very excited to get to talk with you a little bit. Would you want to begin a, a, with uh, telling everyone how you got and started in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I'm actually a third generation oil and gas. So technically, my, you know, my uh, grandfather was pumped oil wells, um, mostly around Wyoming. And my, my dad also pumped oil wells around Wyoming and Southwest Colorado. And I sort of straddled the border of Colorado and Wyoming growing up. And it, I guess it was sort of in my blood. But then I went to school uh, in Denver at, at Regis University for my undergrad and did doubled in politics and economics. And then I went to London School of Economics. And I was always with economics and international relations and politics. I was always really interested in oil. Because uh, it just didn't fit uh, nicely with supply and demand, and it moved. Um, I mean, prices moved and supply moved, and and so I was super fascinated about it, and kind of knew I wanted to work into it uh, or work work with it, and studied Russia and China and things like that, and was always interested in the, in the oil side, and then uh, got out of grad school and just um, was sure I wanted to work in work with an energy and particularly with an oil if I could. And it was just a really tough time with a recession and, and it was 2010 and very high unemployment, very hard to get a job. So I, I ended up uh, buying one way ticket to D.C. and uh, cold calling a bunch of energy organizations till I found the nonprofit that I ended up with, which was called the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And that's really where I was very fortunate to, to learn a ton and cut my teeth on everything. Sort of the U.S. unconventional oil boom was just happening. Everything shale, the Bakken um, and the oil sands and pipelines and sort of was able to really uh, self-teach myself a lot of stuff and, and uh, you know, figure out that I was good at presenting and, and speak with a lot of folks. And just uh, it was a huge blessing in terms of, of being able to just learn an immense amount about the industry and find out that I was uh, extremely passionate about it. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I bet you're really good at puzzles, huh? Um, you know, I don't do a lot of puzzles, but, you know, maybe I should try. <laughs> well, I was just thinking all of the uh, analytics that you'd have to do, you know, leading up to that. So I guess what has been your favorite part of being involved in the oil and gas industry once you got to really get in, into the door? Um, you know, honestly, I would say that puzzle piece or that the learning piece is the best. I mean, there's something that a lot of people, I think, you don't appreciate is the is just the the immense amount of information and um, the complexity of this business. I mean, anything that's a commodity is um, you know you can study it from a lot of different angles of from how it's produced, how it works, who actually uses it, you know, and how that gets to the you know the end use consumer. And then obviously there's you know economic angles of pricing and hedging and everything. But oils are really unique, and especially, uh, I mean, now because of it, it is so, um, you know, it's such a politically controversial thing now, and it and it didn't necessarily used to be. Um, but that's also another, you know, really interesting dynamic about it is that, you know, this this is something that's, um, you know, that was created a long time ago um, under the ground, and the ability to extract it through uh, technological means. And that that piece of the technology is super fascinating. I mean, if I could just go work on completions, I probably would and actually 
you know, did a bit in my, in a part-time job I had with anti-sex exploration. And I, um, I love the completion side. I love the ability to think about how you actually, you know, pump water and sand down these wells and how this, this product actually comes out. So that's super fascinating. And the puzzle piece, I guess, of, of what type of fruit that is and, and where it goes and how it works. And I think, and then pulling all the, that way up to the big stuff is, or, you know, the, the best part is, is really working closely with clients and really working on the business strategy and figuring out how does this, you know, what's the information that they need to know or you need to know to really make your business hum. And a lot of folks don't necessarily understand that they do need to understand the gas industry, whether it's they're, they're kind of involved in it or sort of um, whether they're a service company and they're just sort of chasing rigs or they're looking at, you know, that's the data that they look at as the rigs is there's a, a an immense value in just having a, um, a deeper understanding of how the market works and, and why, which oil operators, you know, why, which companies are in certain areas and why they're drilling that area, whether at those depths, um, you know, is that area going to be, are they going to continue to be there? And, and you have to match up a lot of things with, with, with that information on the permitting side and, and the rig side and the activity. And you just kind of have to, it helps when you um, study it a lot and you, you know it and you can explain this information back to your clients and, and tell them this is what's going on. And, and it's, um, I think it's, it's, for me, I really enjoy the, that I actually enjoy the challenge of being put on the spot and getting really hard questions of, you know, well, why is it like this? And sometimes the best questions are, you know, the ones that are very basic or, or the most obvious that a lot of people just don't ask. And, and it's something like, well, you know, how come the Permian had got all the, you know, why did it take the Permian so long to get all the, all the love when the Bakken had it, you know, and actually having to explain that to a client and walk them through that is a, a really good thought exercise um, because a lot of us take it for granted. So, I, um, you know, I just enjoy my work immensely and I'm, I'm super fortunate to uh, have been, you know, to able to survive it through this 2020 was an extremely rough year and went through a lot of changes with my business. So um, I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. Oh, I can only imagine. How, how did PetroNerds come to be? Uh, PetroNerds came to be through, so when we were, I, my colleague and I were both working at the Energy Policy Research Foundation and uh I think my boss had often come in and just called. I mean, I would I would stay up late and I would be at the office. It was a, a townhouse in Georgetown in D.C. And, um, you know, I would maybe come in at 10 in the morning, but I would often be there till two in the morning if we were crashing on a project or something. And, and I think there's a I was doing a big infrastructure project or paper and I would just stay up late and be putting sticky notes on the walls and you know, doing all the stuff and then getting, you know, crafting something awesome and safely. And I think he called me, uh, I, I have maps everywhere uh, and stuff too. And he called me a Petro nerd and the name kind of just stuck of like, we were, we were true Petro nerds. Um, and then really, I think it was, the work was great, but, you know, we sort of were, we were this nonprofit doing economic policy and technical analysis on the industry, uh, which was awesome. But I think, you know, I just, it was my first real job at a, at a college and I had just sort of tapped out in terms of, you know, how much I could really learn and go. And it, it was a small organization. So I had had, you know, I, I had had quite a few job offers during that, during those five years I was there and turned them down because I, um, you know, right or wrong, I really enjoyed the work that I was doing. And I just didn't think I was going to get that flexibility and freedom at a big company. Um, now, maybe I should have taken that as, as experience, um, but I chose to stay. And then I decided to start my own business. And that's um, just a, you know, a lot of people probably don't appreciate the the intensity of it. Um, you know, you, you see on LinkedIn and you see people like the digital wildcatters that I do my podcast, you know, they host the podcast. I mean, 
um, they they post on stuff like that. But, you know, to quit your job and then start a business, I mean, you just have to be wired in a certain way. So I quit my job in December 2015 and then started the business and, you know, went on with it full time in January 2016 and moved out to Denver and wanted to bring it back, you know, wanted it based here closer to where things were actually happening. And that's, um, you know, that was 2016. And I can say it was not uh, it was not an easy year either in the business, because, as you know, I mean, consultants are kind of the first thing to go. Um, so starting your business out in 2016 and then trying to get work, um, it was a unique it was a unique time. But it was it was probably really good from a, a learning experience and just like pounding the pavement. Um, and I'm one of the type of people that if you put a challenge in front of me, you know, I'm just going to go on and take it. So that that was uh, it, I can't say it was easy. It was really, really hard. Um, but it was uh, a really great learning experience. Yeah, it sounds like you've had to overcome quite a bit of adversity to get to the point where you're at now. Do you think that this most recent transition uh, or these most recent changes, I guess, from 2020, well, actually, even since January 20th, with everything that's been going on, even in the last couple of months, do you think that, that this is going to be more difficult than that 2017 uh, trials and tribulations? I mean, it's, it's interesting because the... You know, this run up in prices, I think, is actually probably people should be a little anxious about it because it's. A, I think it's a little too rapid, a little too fast. So we're sort of clouded, I think, by a lot of stuff that's happening within D.C. Um, I think the, the oil industry probably doesn't have a really deep grasp of how serious the um the legislative stuff is going to be and how um, how intense really that, you know, Washington and the White House are um, on, on their views of the oil and gas industry um, and that it is going to definitely be an uphill battle. And I have been on the record for saying this for a while. I just it's it's kind of impossible to listen to uh, to listen to how the White House is speaking and, and what they're saying and also to read through the executive orders to not come to that conclusion. Um, and it is a little shocking to me that that's not what I'm hearing and feeling from the oil industry itself is that they're sort of prepared for that. Um, so in that sense, I would say that, you know, hopefully uh, you, those folks in the industry, um, you know, listen to the podcast and they, you know, eventually bring me into the boards and talk to them and, and have a, you know, are willing to sort of listen to a, a, a different side of this of somebody who's you know thinking about what could happen and how you sort of assess the risks and how you sort of prepare for that but i think 2020 was such a unique um i mean it was a black swan event you couldn't you couldn't necessarily really predict it i mean nobody could have really predicted oil prices going negative because in fact cme group changed the rules the weekend before to allow them to go negative i mean so there was a you know series of events that that came together and i think that Prices actually going negative and, and then, you know, April and May and how low prices were. And I think that also jarred the industry significantly. So it's something that um, the, you know, OPEC and the Middle East are sort of real from as well, is that, you know, they had been very adamant and serious on not letting prices go below 50. And now that I think they've sort of let them get a little too hot. But that the reason not going below 50 was for the same reasons the operators in the U.S. felt massive pain you know in the spring months of last year which were just really really hard and then the sort of service industry had to deal with that as well right so people were saying well how come the rigs aren't coming back faster and how come faster and how come the frac fleets are coming back faster and a lot of that was simply because you had come from such low points that people were so i mean you're you're just your your brain is jarred your analytical trajectory of how things are going to look and there was a massive fear that was going on there. And, and that's something that, you know, I do wish that um, I was able to work with more 
folks. I mean, a lot of people just, you're not paying for analysis. You're not paying for somebody to talk to, but really it was the time that you should have been working. It was really the time that you should have uh, stayed course and, you know, held your guns and really, yes, it's scary. And yes, prices crashed, but have they done that before? Yes. And is that the time that you should drill and complete your wells? Maybe not necessarily produce them. It absolutely is. Um, and so it, it was, you know, that's, that's what the industry does. They sort of duck and cover. But um, there's there was folks that we saw, obviously, if you've seen the rig count and you look at who has brought those rig backs, they're pretty tiny companies. You know, there are a lot of small companies, private, still private equity companies, private players in the Permian that brought, you know, one and two rigs back relatively early. And so they were able, you know, to capture those low prices and, and to go in on it. And I think that's honestly a, a super smart move. And and obviously it looks smart for anybody who's bringing in wells today, you know, at these price levels. And I think that's just something people have to appreciate too, is that that, that massive gyration in oil prices that, you know, high oil prices are not, uh, they're not necessarily, they're not the answer. Um, and I think folks need to get very comfortable with realizing that these prices are, are not the answer for long-term stability. Yeah, I, I guess with that being said, based on our current trajectory, what is it that you think our recovery is going to look like? I mean, this is the, you're in the recovery to an extent. I mean, this is the recovery. It's just, I don't think people thought the recovery would have this high oil prices. And it's sort of, you know, you still have operators referencing $50 oil in their earnings calls because that's what they're sort of basing everything off of. And then saying that they're going to give everything on top to their shareholders. And that's true to an extent. I don't think it's true to every small operator. So I think you have this sort of everyone just getting used to this and, and, and trying to feel the security behind it. Um, but this is, you, you are in recovery mode. And I think you just have to, I don't think it, it's not likely that prices are going to correct massively and go below 50 and, and hit 40 again. I think we really saw that, you know, where price levels, even after, after prices went negative in April, we sort of came back to this 40 range and we were stuck there. And that was really with, even with all the demand coming off and, and all the supply coming off, that was sort of where we were landing. And so I think now it's just, we have to be careful that there is about 8 million barrels a day sitting on the sidelines with OPEC plus, and they will have to come back. And I, something that the market missed, I mean, the market's been wanting to trend higher. You know, we have uh, the flip in the market where we, we have treasury yields going higher and we have tech stocks and Tesla selling off and we have this flip into um, into, you know, the cyclicals and, and, and we have this reflation trade and everybody isn't worried about inflation and crude oil prices going up are a huge component of that. I mean, in addition to this, this massive, you know, nearly two trillion dollar stimulus bill and higher oil prices. I mean, this is this is real inflation, and, and people are seeing it in copper prices and lumber. And um, when you see oil prices go up that fast, I mean, that's something a consumer feels, and that's a that's inflationary pressure. And I think that that's a concern for that's a concern for a lot of economists, but it's a concern for these emerging markets accepting the you know trying to buy these barrels. And it's something that OPEC really has to consider is that you know they will start they will quickly be cooling off that demand pull that they were getting. Um, and in this recent OPEC meeting, they actually allowed, which was not publicized. And, you know, the storm that we had in Texas with taking 3 million barrels a day offline um, and the refineries, you know, there's still some that are, are, are not back up to full speed. That's all helped propel oil prices higher and I thought sort of act as the catalyst the last several weeks. Um, and then, and then there was a, you know, a, a an attack on one of the Saudi facilities, which didn't actually out, nothing actually happened, but it was a, an attempted attack. Um, and so all this sort of let prices go a little bit higher, but it seems to me like traders are taking it there. The problem is, is that these barrels on the sidelines 
are going to want to come back. And OPEC Plus basically did allow Russia an extra couple hundred thousand barrels a day that they'll be bringing online in, through April and then also Kazakhstan just a little bit. It's not a ton of crude, but we're talking you know, probably around 300,000 barrels a day. And the reality, too, is these you know, these, this agreement, this OPEC plus agreement is very unique in that um, they've done a decent job in keeping the cohesion together of the group, but it's structured in different ways. And so when you start looking at the actual numbers, they are exporting a decent amount of crude. I mean, the Saudis didn't completely drop their exports by 1 million barrels a day with this cut that they said they did in, in, in January. And then they're also, you know, they allow these countries to, um, to, it, condensate is removed from those the crude numbers so typically they would have had to really focus on natural gas and they would have had to cut back on natural gas production because that would have um that would impact the condensate production and since they haven't had to do that they've been able to ramp up natural gas production and ramp up condensate production and kind of offset some of the crude losses and so really when you're looking at that the supply has been you know not quite as low as some realize and and that's that's supportive in a way that that the demand side has you know, supported that and the market has supported it. But I think at these levels and the reason crude is trading higher, um, you know, crude price stability is equally as important as um, as, as the, the overall absolute level of price for operators. And that's just something that folks really have to take into account. And I, you know, hedging, people are being ripped right now for, for actually having hedges in place. And hindsight's 2020, it's easy to say that, but if prices drop 10 bucks tomorrow, those hedges are going to look really good. And I think it's it's super important if you're private equity backed or, you know, you're trying to have any kind of stability is, is hedging plays a really nice role. I mean, you should you should layer it in, but it's it's just an important element to this. And and no one can no one could quite predict that we were going to be at nearly seventy dollar oil prices at this point, um, given the state of events and, and how it's been traded up. No, of course not. And I've actually uh, read a few things that would suggest that the prices are actually going to keep going up and not stabilize any time in the near future, Um, at least not through the not not until the end of summer. It's a couple of things that I've read. But uh, but obviously, I'm I'm excited to get your take on on this. I guess in my mind, I was thinking uh, getting into recovery rather than being into recovery, because in my in my brain, the energy industry had taken such a huge hit towards the end of January that it was kind of like being sent back into a re-recovery, if that makes sense, once everything got shut down, uh, such as the Keystone XL pipeline, which I had noted in one of your podcasts, you'd said you had been working on almost from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, I would just say it's, it's this, look, what, what OPEC has done in these price moves that we've seen, um, the, nobody expected actually this last, this past week that OPEC would not bring any barrels back. And so I did think it was a little, it was kind of cheap of them to not, you know, to, that the, the media did not cover that they allowed Kazakhstan and Russia to increase those barrels. I think they did that probably on purpose. They, they probably kept Kazakhstan and Russia quiet um, and wanted them to to play that down so that they could just say, hey, we're extending these cuts. And obviously crude surged on that because everybody thought they were going to start bringing some barrels back, whether it was 500,000 yeah. barrels a day or the Saudis were going to bring a million. So that unexpectedness just gives me a lot of caution for it's, you know, in April, they may say we're bringing 500,000 barrels a day. They may say we're bringing a million barrels a day back. Um, so I think that just gives me a lot of caution and, and not to pause, but to realize that, you know, you, you just have a lot of pent up barrels sitting there that are, that are ready and willing to come back. And, you know, when the India, you know, when India starts getting louder and louder and countries start getting louder about, 
you know, prices going up and they're in recovery mode, it's going to impact the demand side. So, you know, there is not unlimited demand at certain price decks. And I think that they have like it, it's already impacting the Indian economy and it's already you know, if, you, if you're following Bloomberg or you're staying up late at night and you're watching this, it's like the uh, GDP trajectories of India are, are being changed right now because of the price of oil. So I, there's a sweet spot in which they sort of need to hit. Um, on Keystone Excel and, and the administrative moves, those are, you know, huge. The Keystone Excel was largely a very symbolic move and, you know, obviously hadn't even moved forward with within the four years of the Trump administration after he sort of reapproved that permit. And it just it didn't take place. So, I mean, whether or not that was going to get built is a whole nother question. It, it was the most viable of all the you know Canadian pipelines to get built. And and truthfully, you know, they do still need a one major pipeline because it's it's extremely important. And and any energy transportation, whether it's crude or, or you know, propane or NGLs or anything um, or natural gas or, or whether it's electricity, you need redundancy in the system. Um, and it's important to have those pipelines. So the fact that Keystone Excel is not going to get built, um, that's one thing. But if then if we have the Dakota Access Pipeline gets emptied and and then if Line 5 and Bridge Line 5 gets emptied, if any of those happen or, you know, and, and a different pipeline is emptied, it starts changing the the map and the uh, of the how crude flows within North America, um, and it has an impact. And um, you know, Keystone Excel, so that was a symbolic move. But then, when you had the um, the order for the suspension of delegated authority from the by the acting Secretary of Interior, Order Number Three Three Nine Five, that was a you know that was the suspension that uh, it was suspension of delegated authority basically limited a lot of folks from doing anything but it included the suspension of, of permitting on federal land um and and then you had the executive order that came out um so that was all day one within hours and then you had the executive order come out the following week on january 27th that basically was the executive order on climate change which did explicitly list um basically a, a it wasn't a permanent ban, but it was a it was a ban for as long as they were doing extensive review um, and studying on federal lands. And so they basically, you know, extended that that uh, suspension on federal land. And the White House has cl- had clarified many times um, in their press conferences that they intended that to be permanent. So I, I, it's it's still mind boggling to me that people are, are on the fence of understanding where they intended to be. Now, could they change their minds? Yes, possibly they could change their minds. Um, but that's not the direction. And the, there is nothing um, that's happened in D.C. that would from an energy standpoint, from an oil standpoint, that would lead me to believe that they um, are going to they're looking to to give a to help out the oil industry in, in any shape or form. Yeah, it's well, it seems like that's not really their goal, though, right? Because all of these changes came about with the specific goal of combating climate change is, is the way that I had understood it. Do you think that it's they're going to be uh, getting to their goal with this method? Do you think that this is going to help? No, I don't. I mean, it's it's absolutely not. So they're using climate change as a um, they're using climate change as a reasoning for doing this, and I'm I'm troubled by that because if it's then we're talking about CO two emissions, so it should be about CO two emissions. And and I I put this article on LinkedIn and 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 I've quoted a few times because you know the Economist wrote it, it's not it's not a bias or really unbiased article either. It's 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 an article explaining you know Biden's climate change agenda. Um, but it very clearly points out that uh, what he's that he has one of the first the first way of tackling climate change is to go after oil and gas production. And so 
if you're going after oil and gas production to tackle climate change, um, and it then and you're going after the it's the emissions, the em- emissions from the industry only contribute one percent of of CO two emissions. So that's not you're you're unfairly attacking that industry. Now clearly that's symbolic, right? It's it's they are producing the oil and gas. But the problem is we have countries all over the world, including Australia and Norway and Canada, who are um, you know, a whole heart have, have climate change agendas, have um, are part of the Paris Climate Accords, and yet they produce oil. And, and I don't know if all those are part of the Paris Climate Accords, but they produce oil and gas and they are not, you know, taking a back seat in that stance. They're not reducing their production or hampering it. And so it's really interesting to me that even the most aggressive and most liberal countries in Europe have not done what, you know, have not tried to do what this administration is trying to do. Um, and so it is it is absolutely um, an, a bias and unfair thing to attack oil and gas production on the basis of emissions. And and it just means that you're going to be importing, you know, I, I think it's probably the, the opponents or folks on the other side of this probably get tired of hearing it, but it's very true. I mean, if you're not producing it here in the U.S., you are importing it um, unless you're substantially reducing your, your, um, your demand. And there's nothing in those executive orders other than trying to push through a massive amount of EVs, electric vehicle uptake, which is a whole nother issue on, on outsourcing energy security. But we, part of these executive orders and part of the stimulus package that's actually, you know, pushed all this inflation is, you know, everybody's going crazy about electric vehicles and the components. And we are going to see a huge boom in mining, not just, I mean, all over the world. I doubt it will really happen in the, in the U S to a large extent because of the environmental stringencies in the U S but Mining for cobalt and mining for nickel and mining for um, all the battery components lithium, and, earth yeah. metal and lithium. And, and lithium is one thing. I mean, we've kind of been mining for a long time, but it, cobalt is a huge is a huge component as well. So not just battery components, but stuff that you know, it's it's batteries and it's solar panels and it's it's wind turbines and it's all the stuff that goes into it. And so it's a huge that that in itself, just that that impetus and that demand is creating massive inflationary pressure. And so the cost components of that are going to go up and almost none of those are made in the U.S. So um, and it's, it's just important to realize is that, you know, we can build all the charging stations and everything that we want. And that, that's not necessarily a bad thing for an infrastructure boom and for jobs and everything. But you're not sourcing if you're not sourcing those batteries and stuff, you're, you're sourcing elsewhere. And, you know, it's a, it's a real thing for energy security. It's stuff that, you know, the 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 thinkers on this stuff from a policy perspective need to be thinking about is that, you know, and, and China has done a really good job of sort of positioning themselves to be the maker of these products and to be exporting them. Um, and so we're sort of, we're, we'll be sort of outsourcing that, but it's not necessarily, none of it's real yet. So this is all very, you know, this is talk, these are in executive orders. And so it's very theoretical and yet the market's already moving on it. And so it has just really significant implications, I think, for you know the overall economy of how it's going to unfold. It, it sounds really great on paper. I think it's going to be exceptionally messy. And then another part of this, that climate change executive order, is decarbonizing the grid by 2035, like basically having it a net zero. And a lot of things that people don't think about are carbon capture. And I think you could you could probably do that with some carbon capture. But if it's being all done through renewables, you know, and I'm not hearing a lot of love on the carbon capture side out of D.C. at least, um, or policymakers. And they're just 
again, there hasn't been a whole lot of clarity on this, is that you're going to try to rapidly decarbonize the grid. And, you know, most of us got a little savvy with the grid in this big Texas storm and, and the subsequent storms thereafter. So if you pull up the grids and you see the actual power source and you, you look at the U.S., it's, you know, Texas has a lot of natural gas. And but because they have that natural gas, they've also been able to have a lot of renewables because the natural gas sort of helps offset that in, in a time situations and the rest of the u.s is still predominantly coal and so to decarbonize the grid that rapidly is going to have some very fast and jarring implications um and just all these things impact you know people's jobs and livelihoods and the economy um and this is not something this is new i mean i i was i've been listening to a bunch of podcasts on and doing research on india and you know they have such a huge coal base of of, the, of people that work and live in coal, um, and so the you know when they're thinking about how to how to get off coal and to to just change up the grid, it's extremely complex. Not just because um, it's entrenched within their e- economy and their culture and their communities, um, it, it's it just that it's something that they use and consume, and and there's no easy way to just turn on you know to flip it. Mm-hmm. And it's no different than here. We this is a we just. It's a big, you know, country with a lot of, you know, these separate states. And I think we we often look to Europe and think of how it's been done there. And, you know, it's it's been done in some ways. But I mean, Germany still has um, still consumes coal because they have a very strong constituency uh, that produces coal in part of their country. And they have never been able to get rid of that. Um, and they still produce it. I mean, the UK is actually opening a deep sea coal mine for the first time in years, a new one um, that's not publicized and not talked about, but it's because they, they're, I think it's, it's actually, it's offshore and it's not going to power, but it is going to steal. Um, And it's just kind of fascinating to me that the UK is going ahead with a new power, you know, a new coal plant when we, you know, in the U S we're, you know, we're attacking um, oil and gas production and it just, it, this, this stuff has happened in history before. And it, and it, um, you know, when you, when you flip this hard one direction, you typically have to flip back another direction. And I just, I don't think these things are going to come out um, nice and cleanly in reality. No, it sounds like we might be looking at a little bit of turbulence. Kind of, kind of also sounds like even with these executive orders, we still don't really know exactly what's going to end up uh, happening once the implementation occurs because of different varying issues that maybe haven't been thought of. Although I did see that uh, Senator Manchin had come out in support of the coal part of our energy industry, and it sounds kind kind of like uh, you you had mentioned the uh, carbon capturing or the carbon sequestration. It kind of sounds like uh, in places like Wyoming and North Dakota that they're kind of going to be focusing more so on the carbon capturing through through coal or with coal. Or um, it's it, it was pretty fascinating. I've heard I've heard b- snippets tidbits. But uh, obviously, I'm I'm no professional. <laughs> no, and you know, it's something that's been. That's the thing is, like you know, I've been in this industry and for years, and so people have, you know, what what is old always becomes new again, and what people say is like that's impossible. Nothing's impossible from a technological standpoint, you know. And so people said five years ago that carbon capture is dead. I mean, I heard people, very smart people that have done work on carbon capture, ever saying this is completely dead. It will never get off the ground. 
it hasn't been invested in it. It's not technologically viable. It's not cost effective. Well, you know, when you when you put a bunch of executive orders and you underwrite this stuff and you have money flowing to it, all of a sudden it becomes really interesting again. And it's basically to get to the emission targets that anybody wants to in the world, whether it's two degrees or whether it's 1.5 or whatever it is, you have to have carbon capture in there. It's impossible. Um, you will not hit it. Um, frankly, you're not going to hit it unless you address India and China. And we're not going to hit it. We're not even going to get close to it by just doing what we're doing in the U.S. So, you know, all our efforts really need to be probably abroad, but that's that's not politically palatable and nobody wants to talk or, or say that. So we just focus everything on here. Um, and it's ways to drive different infrastructure and investment. But carbon capture in itself is, I mean, it makes sense, a lot of sense because you can, um, but it is really expensive and it hasn't been done at scale. Um, and in theory, you could be doing it off power plants and you could be um, what they're doing in the Permian and what Occidental and Vicky Holub are promoting and have been promoting for years is is the using CO2, um, you know, obviously they're re-injecting CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. And then they're basically making those barrels zero, you know, a zero carbon barrel. It's because they're capturing all the carbon that's in the production cycle of that. So that um, they actually teamed up with United and United is getting barrels from them that have a zero carbon because United is trying to lower their carbon footprint. But, you know, and I'm not saying the efforts of all this, but you do have to ask yourself, what are the costs of all these things? And do they actually, technically, over the life cycle of everything, are they actually lowering the footprint? Because it, I, I don't know exactly how all that's being measured. But, you know, if we're talking about a Tesla vehicle, you know, if you're actually, you know, looking at the life cycle emissions of how you make that vehicle, if it's not less on a carbon footprint standpoint, and then if I'm plugging into my house, you know, and I have 33% coal in my house and that's the power, um, then I, I, you know, that's, it doesn't actually have a lower carbon footprint. Right. So if it's a pure electric grid or something, or if I'm, you know, have it, if I have a battery and it's being powered by the sun, that's different. But I mean, doing all this stuff, um, and it's just, it's, it's not something that I'm, I'm ixnaying or poo-pooing it is that it's just, you know, renewables do have a place and, and, you know, technology is awesome and I, I love it in the oil and gas sector, but you have to be conscious of what's actually happening. It's, it's no different than saying if, you know, the industry is doing something wrong, is calling them out on it and then doing a better job. And the industry can do a lot better job in terms of addressing emissions and, and dealing with that stuff. And I think they are. I mean, the impetus on the industry is doing this. But I think that the fairness is that you need to say, OK, we're going to regulate you. Here's the regulations and they'll go comply with them. This industry will do that. They're extremely innovative and they will rise to the challenge. But putting out, you know, legislation that is that is undeterminable and, and it has yet to be implemented and putting all these question marks out. It's very hard to navigate and do business. The basics of anything of doing business, um, you have to have stability and predictability and executive orders that are written like this do not create stability and predictability. And frankly, they create, they, they're already creating chaos and, and wreaking havoc on the market of, of this, you know, electric vehicle boom and, and everybody going crazy because they think this is going to, to be awesome. And the same thing, you can read it for offshore wind is that everybody's going bananas about offshore wind. There's only a few places in the U.S. where offshore wind technically works and where you actually have the wind and you can do it. And it still hasn't, you know, to have that offshore wind, you have to have very reliable and stable large cycle combined, you know, combined natural gas facilities on the power side um, and in the Northeast to basically accept that wind. And I, you know, a little certain we may not have those or I'm not certain we're ever going to build a new one. Um, if we're so anti-fossil fuels, will we ever build a new, are we going to continue to use our, our one, our existing, and we have a lot of natural gas combined cycle facilities and power, but are we going to continue to use them efficiently? And just because we have them doesn't mean that everything's in the right location, you know, and, the, and right. I think, you know, no, knowing where natural gas is produced and knowing where the pipelines are 
And, you know, if you are burdensome on the regulatory environment or you can never build a new pipeline, you can impact that production, you can impact that stability and predictability or the economics of things. And that's all really important for, you know, natural gas is going to be a critical comp- component of, of the uptake of these renewables on the grid side. Yeah. You, wow. Yeah, no, it's a... Uh, wow. I, I totally lost a whole bunch of my thoughts and I've been writing down and taking notes. You've got so much information. I could probably sit here and listen to, to it for hours because this is a, a, a you have a very unique perspective on on what is happening simply because you get to work with all of this information on a daily basis. So that's yeah, that's a lot of things for uh, I, I hope somebody is listening someone else is listening in the industry too so that maybe maybe there'll be good good stuff coming from it because yeah it's it kind of sounds like maybe the focus should be a little bit different in order to take a real sustainable approach to uh, making a positive change on this but I guess until then like you said we'll just have to continue focusing on what what we're able to do here yep I think it's a lot of studying and learning and I appreciate those those are kind words and I, I did ramble on for a long time so um I, I People probably have to play this back on slow speed, but um, yeah, it's 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 what you know. Fortunately, I I, I love what I do, and so studying it. Um, and I, I think that you know, there's a lot of ways you can look at this pretty negatively, but I think there's a lot of ways to study it and sort of work around it, you know. And it does create a lot of opportunity, and there are ways to navigate this. Um, so it just that you know, you have to be smart, and you have to have your ear to the ground, and you have to be you know willing to sort of bust your ass and and make it work. Yeah, well, and I, I think that's true of, of anything, but it's uh, right now in the in the industry, I can't imagine that it's going to get any easier for a moment. So yeah, busting butt and, and keeping up, yeah. c- keeping that motivation and perseverance, I think is going to be the real key. Actually, on that note, because uh, I, like I said, I know you're probably pretty busy, but is there anything exciting coming up for, with uh, Petro Nerds? You know, we've done, I've done a lot in the past, you know, sort of revamping over last fall. The PetroNerds.com has a new website and a new logo. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, it, you, you know, it's a small company, but definitely punch above our weight. And um, I'm speaking at the, or already spoken, it's recorded, but Digital Wildcatters has an Evolve conference that's on the 10th. And so I did a recording and, and with a, the uh, Chip Moliner, I'm going to get his name wrong. He's he's the head of Law IQ, or now called Arbo. And so we, we talked a lot about DAPL and the next evolution of oil and gas transportation. Um, so actually, a lot of this stuff we really get in the weeds on on the on the DAPL and Enbridge Line Five stuff, um, which was a great conversation. And yeah, expect big things from from Petrons this year. I'm I'm off to the races, and I you know really enjoying the podcast, and I want to get some some heavy hitters actually you know, talk with some CEOs and, and get involved in stuff. And um, I probably need to spend a little more time in Houston and doing stuff. And I've actually really enjoyed the, I've, since I've started the podcast, I've been invited on a lot of other people's podcasts, which has been super fun. So I really appreciate you taking the time um, and chatting with me. I love the business and I love talking about this stuff and, um, and I love helping people and I love educating. So um, expect more of that. Oh, yes. I'm excited to hear that then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you are extraordinarily knowledgeable. So no, it was a joy listening to what you had to say. And if there's any, you know, big updates or anything that you would like shared, you feel free to let me know. And I would love to get that word out there too. So anyone listening, if you haven't been to the Petro Nerds website, make sure you get up there. It is a really cool looking website. You did a great job on the design too. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the website, so you can follow me on LinkedIn because I do post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Great way to get in t- touch with me. And then I'm on Twitter as Trisha J. Coffee as well. 
um, a lot of late night posts on OPEC stuff. So, I mean, you can nice. follow me on there, but feel free to, you know, reach out to me in any of those forms. Nice. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Trisha. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, anytime. Sounds great. I'll hold you to it and hopefully we'll get to talk again then. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Right, bye. All right, my friends, that was Trisha Curtis, the CEO and president of PetroNerds. Make sure to go and check out PetroNerds.com if you haven't already. There's great content up there. It's a good-looking website, highly knowledgeable in the industry, obviously, as you just heard. And if you do like the content you just heard, there's more to find on TheCrudeLife.com. So make sure to check that out as well.